we will call the Sunday school children back up for the Lord's table at the end of our service this morning. DiCaprio family, Caleb family, Mentor family, thank you for being with us and sharing with us. We're, we are so enriched to worship God together in song, and I um, just thank you so much for, uh, for what you uh, played for us today and for being willing to, to share and worship that way. That's such a blessing. If you turn in uh, your Bibles this morning, please, to John chapter 14. We're starting a new study uh, this morning on um, the basics of the Christian spiritual life, what it means to be spiritual, and this, the new order established by the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost, as read in Acts chapter 2. But we're going to start our discussion of the Christian spiritual life with the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 15. And his last instructions to his disciples about what they could expect after his departure, he taught them about the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower them for every good work. He had been their teacher, their guide, their leader, their paraclete, one called alongside them to lead them. He was going away. They were not to be troubled because if he went away, he would send another paraclete, translated in some Bibles, comforter, another's helper. But it means someone called alongside you for your instruction, guidance, and benefit. And I believe that the Christian spiritual life is unique in world history and the workings of God because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers. But what Christians tend to know about the Holy Spirit is very limited for a couple of reasons. The worst of which is that sensationalism and emotionalism take over and then we don't actually hear what the Spirit has to say. We crowd it out with how we feel. But Jesus gives us the nuts and bolts of the Christian spiritual life in terms of our production. When he says in John chapter 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned." If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. 
the nature of Christian spirituality is abiding in Christ. The meaning Jesus has for abiding is often missed in an effort to superimpose our theological pre-understandings on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's understandable why we would do that because there are challenging words, because we have to make sense of the whole of what God has presented to us. And that sense that we seek to, to make is called theology. But if you listen to the scriptures first, and sometimes it's a painful thing to do because it puts your theology on hold and you just listen and let God tell you what he wants, it's very clear that all success in the Christian life comes from our staying connected in a dependent way on the Lord Jesus Christ, staying connected to Christ in a dependent way. It is a commitment. It is a self-aware abiding The way the branch metaphor breaks down for you as the branch connected to the vine is that a branch doesn't have to choose to be connected to the vine out of which it has grown. But Jesus several times serves up in this passage commands for us to deliberately stay connected. I wouldn't import an Arminian or Wesleyan theology into this and say that therefore if you don't stay connected then you aren't going to be able to to have eternal life or that you don't um, any longer have your regeneration or your justification. I would say that Jesus is talking about being productive. Now, why in the world would you enter into viticulture growing of vines? Why? Why? Would you ever do the hard work of coaxing these delicate plants with their temperamental idiosyncrasies? Why would you ever want to to grow vines? There is absolutely no reason in the world to enter into this unless you want grapes. Why would you pasture flocks? Because you're bored and you like to be bored with company? Why would you have sheep and follow them around and take on the distinctive olfactory characteristics of the sheep with whom you're associated. Why would you need a shepherd? Why would you keep sheep? The novelty of the petting zoo wears off pretty quickly. Why do we pasture flocks? Because we want wool. Because of the fruit of the flock. Because of the fruit of the vine. The reason for Jesus' instructions here is that we're on a mission. We have an objective. God wants to get something out of us. And Christian spirituality is about being fruitful. As we start our discussion, it'll take us through the month of November on Christian spirituality categorically considered. I want to start off with, with from John 15 and the idea of fellowship with God being abiding in Christ. Being spiritual is a, the, the self-committing dependency of ourselves on Jesus Christ, not the first time you trusted in Christ, but the ongoing and deliberate sense of dependency on Jesus Christ. We have to start spirituality with Christ. There is no Christian without Christ. There is no Christianity without Christ. There's no Christian, distinctively Christian spirituality or the spiritual life without the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we say today, 
as our opening discussion, that Christian spirituality begins with Christ. That's what we're calling today. Christian spirituality begins with Christ. We want to say there are two or three special ways that this is true. No one is spiritual in the world without the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Today, it is popular to talk about spirituality because the world that we live in has discovered the answers do not lie in science. They don't lie in logic or rationality. The philosophy departments don't have answers. The engineering departments don't have answers except to specific questions about how do we manipulate certain uh, certain aspects of the natural world. But the science, do- science departments don't have answers to our greatest needs, and we can continue to probe and experiment and try clinical examples, but we never get to satisfaction in life or real fruit bearing unless we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And while uh, spirituality as a, as a popular topic um, has uh, taken a certain, uh, a certain vogue in our day, this is not popular secular spirituality or pan-religionism or pan-anythingism spirituality is not Christian, distinctively Christian spirituality. In fact, it is at best a counterfeit, and a counterfeit is a nefarious, nefarious thing that you never want to have anything to do with. A counterfeit is theft and deception. But Christian spirituality, the genuine article, begins with the Lord Jesus Christ. And for you in this age and how God is dealing with humanity right now, it begins with the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is the beginning of eternal life, of reception of a special ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that the, that the Bible calls regeneration. Same book, John, chapter 3, has a long discourse on regeneration. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the, the play on words there is also from above. It's both. You must be born again. This regenerating work of God, the Holy Spirit, is the beginning of Christian spirituality because it is the beginning of a spiritual life. You see, as in Adam all are dead and Christ shall all be made alive is a statement about spiritual death and spiritual life. And when you don't have Jesus Christ, you do not have his life. But when you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive his life. And this is the beginning of Christian spirituality. If you don't have a spiritual life, how could we expect spiritual production? If you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, how could we expect him to bear his fruit in you? We couldn't, we shouldn't. We shouldn't go around in the world and expect Christian conduct or Christian character or Christian uh, mentality. We should expect the world and with compassion that the Lord Jesus as a shepherd looking at sheep without a shepherd, we should consider them as objects of God's care as we pray for God to open doors to the gospel, as we love them with the truth. The gospel is the beginning of eternal life or regeneration, the new birth, and spiritual life begins right at that point. If you haven't believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he paid for your sins, your sin debt in his own body on the cross, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then spirituality is not an issue. Christian spirituality is not open to you, and it is a very, therefore, exclusive arrangement. 
Because spirituality is a relationship with God. And as we know in John 14, 6, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. You have no relationship with God the Father if you don't get it from Jesus. And so Christian spirituality, the relationship with God, begins with faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is so much in the New Testament about Christian production and performance. There is so much about obedience, about giving your life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So much of his instructions, for example, in Matthew 10 in the discipleship discourse, there is so much in the scriptures about Christian performance, but it is all founded on a beginning point, the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, for by grace are you saved through faith faith, believing, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And if that causes a little fish hook to stick in your throat a little bit, if you think, ah, it's too easy, that's easy believism, just believing, you're not telling me to do anything. Can I invite? Can I plead? Can I feel bad? Can I do something to at least help a little bit? And the answer is, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we who are saved by grace through faith are his workmanship, regenerated, created in Christ, newly born again with a new spiritual life in Christ, that we would uh, walk in the good works he's prepared in advance for us. The good works of the Christian life are for Christians. But don't I have to do good works so that God approves of me? No, because you have Jesus Christ. You do good works because God approves of you. Christianity, the Christian spiritual life, is by having already received the grace of God, I now walk in gratitude, living out the life that God has prepared for me. The spiritual life only begins with regeneration, and that is Jesus died for my sins at the cross. If you believe that, when you first believed that, this was the moment of your regeneration. When you are born again into Christ, that is very literally a new spiritual life. You have the life. Now, we have to grow and we have to live it. We have to grow into it and we have to live it. We have to grow into it and we have to live it. And when are we finished growing? Never. When are we saying we're mature? We don't, says Paul in Philippians 3. We continue to grow. We continue to advance because we are a branch and God wants us to bear fruit and it's a lifetime pursuit. And when, does, when have you had enough relationship with God? When am I done growing and producing fruit? When have I had enough of God and Him being my heavenly Father? It turns out it never ends. You'll never stop glorifying God. Of the increase of his kingdom and righteousness, there will be no end forever and ever, says the prophet Isaiah. So the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of spiritual life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the first way Christian spirituality begins with Jesus. I'm looking around here and I don't know everyone's spiritual state, but you know what? Only God does. But I will testify this. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have since I was a very small child. And I'm suspecting that most of you are in that category as well. 
you have spiritual life at least by virtue of your regeneration. There are at least seven ministries of the Holy Spirit stated in the New Testament. It has been the tendency of theologians to jam them all together and say, oh, that's just in the Holy Spirit bucket, and not to distinguish, for example, regeneration from indwelling, or indwelling from filling, or filling from sealing, and the various things, or sealing from baptism. But these are different words, and they have different meanings. One Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who does different works in the same person, you, the believer. The first is the new birth. Never let anyone laugh at it. Never let anyone, I mean, they they can laugh at it, but never let let it change your opinion of the wonderful riches of new life in Jesus Christ because you belong to God as your heavenly father and as much as you have Jesus. Christian spirituality begins with Jesus Christ. The second way the second way in which the spiritual life begins with Jesus Christ. Now, get ready for this. Most of our verses on the spiritual life that we, we clarity on are presented by the Apostle Paul. Paul is no less empowered or no more empowered by the Spirit than the other apostles, but he was given Ephesians 5 to tell us. He was given Galatians chapter 5. He was given Colossians chapter 3. Paul received the revelation of God on the specific statements that we have about walking by the Spirit. But he wasn't the first with this instruction. In fact, I don't believe in Pauline theology. I believe Paul was a Christian. I believe in Christian theology, meaning from Jesus Christ. Paul is an apostle, which means somebody else did the apostling. Someone else sent him. Paul is of Christ. And so Christian spirituality begins with Christ in this sense, that Jesus taught it first. Jesus' instructions on the spiritual life came before Paul ever met him on the road to Damascus. Jesus taught the 12, uh, well, the 11 remaining in the room, disciples on his last night of instruction about the Christian, the coming new order spiritual life. I'm going away, but you don't worry. I'm sending the helper. I'm sending the paraclete who will be called alongside you. And so this is where we want to bring our attention. John chapter 14, where the Lord Jesus Christ teaches Christian spirituality. Actually, he starts with uh, his prologue of Christian spirituality in chapter 13 with a high bar that you and I will never attain except for supernatural power in us. He proves from the very beginning of his instruction that the order that's coming that's empowered by God the Holy Spirit in us that we live in today, this order that Jesus is prophesying will come soon after his death. This order is of such a nature that it transcends the commands of the Old Testament. It is higher than what Israel was called to do. It is greater in its magnitude, and it is a participation with Jesus in the work that his Father sent him to do. Jesus will say, Heavenly Father, I have done what you sent me to do. He says it in John 17 before the cross. I've done what you sent me to do. And that's a riddle. And I think the riddle, the answer of it, helps you understand the entirety of this section of Scripture, affectionately known as the Upper Room Discourse, John chapters 13 through 17. He teaches them by washing their feet. He gives them his precept at the end of chapter 13. And then the long discussion, 14 through 16, with the long prayer in chapter 17. That's the Upper Room Discourse, the first teaching on the Christian spiritual life. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us that we have a supernatural responsibility that is going to require enablement beyond what Israel was called to do, what anyone in all of human history was called to do. And by the way, I am convinced 
that the way uh, God teaches us his righteousness through the Mosaic law is he shows us our total bankruptcy in our own righteousness, our incapacity to do as we should, to walk before God and be blameless. Only, the only person who ever really understood what Moses said was the man who beat his breast before God and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisees who said, well, we've done everything you said, so let's have the blessings. The self-righteous people that thought they'd kept the law had missed the entire point. Only the poor of spirit would inherit. And so here Jesus is going to teach a high calling to life, which you and I could never attain, to which Moses was not commanded to give Israel, but yet it is our watchword. It is the new commandment in John 13. Verse 31 of John 13 when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified as gl- and God is glorified in him. Believers, that's the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, to reveal the Father and therefore bring glory to him. You are part of this mission. You are here on earth to reveal the Father and the train of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the summary of Christian spirituality. You are here to glorify God by revealing him in the same mission of Jesus Christ. Now he says, this, the Son is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him him and himself and will glorify him immediately little children i'm with you a little while longer you will seek me and as i said to the jews now i also say to you where i'm going you cannot come this is his first statement of separation which will call for a word of encouragement in the next section where i'm going you cannot come a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as i've loved you that you also love one another by this all men will know that you are my students, my disciples, if you have love for one another. This commandment transcends the Mosaic law. It is bigger and higher. It shows you that what we are going to be dealing with in the power of the Holy Spirit is not possible, is not possible within the energy of the flesh. You cannot do this. Let me prove it to you. Who thinks they're as good a lover as Jesus? Only the egomaniacal would raise his hand. Notice lady that said, his hand. <laughs> Who's a, as good, who can love to the standard of Jesus? He says, love one another as I've loved you. This raises the bar. Now, what, what was the command for love in the Old Testament? Summarize the law. What was the command? That you love your neighbor as yourself. John 13, 34, as you know, says, love one another as I've loved you. This is not a restatement. This is an advance. He didn't go back to the law and say, this is still going on. He said, a new commandment I give you. And the apostle John in his epistle, 1 John says, it's new in this sense that Jesus first gave it to us. And since you've been with us, you've heard, it, heard this. But it's, it's, it's not new that he, he gave it to us. It's new that it wasn't in the Old Testament. How, does, how is a fallen, broken, sinful human going to love someone to the standard of the Son of God? How in the world can you fulfill this command? Well, I'll tell you what. It's the beginning of fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. I think all the love, all the fruit of the Spirit telescopes out of love because in 1 Corinthians 13, love, joy, peace, patience, those are all things love does in 1 Corinthians 13. I think it's all love. Fruit of the Spirit is love. How will you love as Christ loved? The Holy Spirit will bear this fruit in you as you abide in the vine. See, this is a new spiritual life that requires a clinging dependency upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and with that comes an empowerment from the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. So the new commandment 
enters us into the mission. Did you notice? By this, all men will know you're my disciples. You testify to Jesus Christ with how you connect to one another. My concern for you and your concern for me and your concern for one another and your self-sacrificial giving love as Christians to one another, disciples of Jesus to one another, is proof to the world that the Father has sent the Son and that you are His disciples. The world knows that you are distinctively Christian. Christianity is branded it's branded. It's not, well, this is how the Preston City Bible Church teaches love. If we have something different from what Jesus has branded, you know what we need to do with it? Can it? We need to trash it. We need to compact it. We need to burn it and then eject it off the planet. It needs to be gone. Only what Jesus Christ has branded is distinctively Christian because it's of Christ. So when you love each other as you've been commanded in the power of the Holy Spirit, Self-sacrificially, that's the standard of Christ. Self-sacrificially, when you concern yourself for the needs of the other, you are demonstrating that you are disciples of Christ to the world. All men will know you're my disciples. You enter the mission by obeying the Lord Jesus Christ in that sense. Simon heard verse 33 And I don't know that he heard verses 34 and 35 because of what he says in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? (laughs) He just dropped the bomb of the new mission command, a new commandment. That is legal language, by the way. I believe if if you check out, this is where David, autobiographically, this is where David Roseland discovered this. It's just where I first became consumed by this new order. I've always believed in it, but I didn't see it in the scriptures quite like this until I'm reading through the epistle of human liberty, of freedom from the Mosaic law, and especially the change of Judaistic legalism, uh, the corruption of the law in Galatians. In Galatians chapter six, verse two, the book that says that you are not to find yourself under the strictures of the Mosaic law, Galatians, if you receive circumcision, you're severed from Christ. We're not under the Mosaic law, but he says, bear one another's burdens and by this, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. That is something I began to run down. Like this is the the epistle of not under the law. We're now free in Christ. How is there a law of Christ? Now, some of you are like, it took you that long to get there. Hey, I'm not here to judge the rate of your progress either. I knew I was supposed to love. I knew, but, but this is a legal order. This is, a, this is a, an organizational mandate that becomes our precept. I mean, we become accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ in a legal sense, obey the law of Christ. We just uh, read, read the letter about Miss Nell. This is our obedience of this command. And it is an obedience of a command. But don't show up without the Spirit of God empowering you. Don't show up with your armor off. This is Christian love. It's not energy of the flesh. Peter says, where are you going? Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Did you ever notice that Jesus uh, answers questions in a way that makes you ask more questions? Very terse. Great coffee, Mike. Thank you. Really good. Very terse, very 
summary fashion. You can't come now, but you'll come later. Chew on that for a while. Peter says, uh, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? So he hangs on. He's, he's doing his Bible study methods. He observed what Jesus said, and he's trying to ask theological questions about it. I will lay down my life for you. Isn't that beautiful? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. But I just said I would lay down my life for you. See, I think that in the context, the, the, by the design of Jesus' instruction, by the, the, the orchestration of the providence of God in history, and by the literary design of John, all these are converging to say something. He's talking about introducing a, a new order that's going to require a new power that they don't have. And Peter's still stuck in before this. He doesn't have the Spirit yet. He hasn't been glorified, so the Spirit hasn't been given, John 7. And so, so Peter doesn't understand, and Jesus says, you're about to demonstrate your frailty, your lack of capability, and the need for power that the Holy Spirit's gonna provide you. And you know what happens? You know what happens on the day of Pentecost? These men have power in their presentation because they're empowered by the Spirit. There's a massive change between the night in which Peter denied Jesus three times and then the day of Pentecost when Peter, empowered by the Spirit, can preach and 3,000 are converted. The difference is the Spirit. It's not Peter. The difference is the Holy Spirit, and he's very helpful for us to see ourselves and our frailty and our need for God's capability. Well, this is the prologue to the Upper Room Discourse discussion where Jesus is going to teach them about the new order. In 1336, really through chapter 14, verse 24, you have four problems that the disciples introduce. The first is, where are you going? And Jesus says, you don't want to follow me. You're not ready. (laughs) You can't follow me. In fact, you're going to deny me. And this introduces this problem of Jesus' departure. And his solution to it is, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if you have me, you can come where I'm going. He's the way. Now, this is what happens. They say, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. It's as though a bridegroom in this, in this time in which this was written, uh, that a bridegroom would go and prepare a place in his father's home for his bride. And there would not be a consummation to the betrothal. There is a legal marriage, but not a consummation of the marriage until the official ceremony, which would be the reception of the bride into the father's household. And that that's, explains a lot of what's going on in the Gospels in the birth of Christ. And also is, uh, I think, the imagery he has here. I'm going to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. I think that is the imagery that he's invoking here. He is preparing us a place so that we can be with him. And as you read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at the resurrection, so will we ever be with the Lord. You will never have a moment after your resurrection that you're not where he is in the sense of, of, uh, of his residence and, uh, and, 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 um, and your service, your eternal service. So Jesus is going to prepare a place and this solves the problem of his absence. Well, where are you going to be and why can't we be there with you? Well, it's not time yet. And then they ask, where is the way? Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? This is uh, the second problem that, he, that, that John, we don't know the way, and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
If you'd known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. This is the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, to reveal the Father. He is not the Father. He's not saying he's the Father. He's saying, if you had paid attention, you would know the Father, because I have revealed the Father to you. And so, uh, Philip has a question. This is the third problem. The first question is where you're going. The second question is how can we go there when we don't know the way? And the third problem is show us the Father in 14, 8 through 21. This is the longest section of John 14. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say to us, show us, say me, show the Father? This does not mean uh, that we have Father, Son, and Spirit in one person with different names. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you can't know the Father except through my revelation of the Father. And what that is, is his words and his works. That's what Jesus came on earth to do. He had a message and he had works that go with the message. What did Jesus do on earth in his earthly ministry? He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out lepers. He did the powerful things that only God can do to authenticate and demonstrate the Father's power and glory. And what did he say? And the message I have, I did not receive. I did not originate my message. I received it from my Father. I'm telling you who my father is. I'm telling you what it is to think like God thinks. I always think in this question of, uh, of Israel, hearing of God the Father and rejecting him, I always think of the, the four parables of the lost, the lost sheep, the lost sheep and the shepherd, and, the, and the, the, the parable of the father who's lost a son. We call it the prodigal son, the parable of the longing father. These parables are showing the, Israel, the Israelite Pharisees, the religious class, that they don't think like God. And they think they do, but they don't. They're self-righteous. They are hateful. They're Jonas about the other. They're like Jonah. Jonah's another mirror passage that shows you, you don't think like God thinks about these people, these Assyrians. You don't think like God thinks about these tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees. You're not rejoicing with one, when one comes to God and repents. That's the, that's the picture of the, the, the prodigal and the, and the shepherd. You don't understand that when one sheep comes back, everyone rejoices more than over the 99 that stayed because there was the restoration of that which was lost. You don't think like your father. You don't think like your father about the sinners around you. That's, that's God the Son revealing God the Father. See, that's, if you watch the, the Gospels, that's the ministry. That's what he's doing. And so now he's going to talk about them doing his works of revealing the Father. He's going to talk about that same issue as he uh, teaches them about the Father. So he says, how long have, uh, have I been with you so long in verse 9? Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who's seen me and seen the Father, has seen the Father, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words, by the way, in, this language of in, is going to be used in the next chapter about abiding in Christ. It's in. There is, is a fellowship, there is a communion that he's describing and this is important theology. In what sense is he saying he's in the Father? Does he mean of, of one essence? Is he talking about our theology of one essence with three persons? Okay, I think he's talking about fellowship. I think he's talking about being of one mind with on the same operation that he's, that he's uh, revealing the Father by everything that he does. 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. The words and works of Jesus are the Father's works through him. Now, why am I talking about this introducing Christian spirituality? Because that's the mission Jesus was on to reveal the Father. That's what he's committing to the disciples. So he says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. And then verse 12, he introduces them, these disciples, into this mission. Truly, truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works will, uh, than these will, will he will do because I go to the Father. How can we say greater works than Jesus geographically in terms of numbers? Over time, three and a half years of ministry is different from 2,000 years of ministry. One man never leaving a, the, a, a hundred mile radius of, of, of where he was born is a totally different thing than millions of believers empowered by the Spirit doing the same work that he did. Of course, there's greater work because he's starting, he's planting a seed that's going to explode through the world. But it's the same work in what sense? Well, I'm not raising the dead. It's not about the specifics of the works that you're doing. It's about the point they're making, which is to reveal the Father. Do you see how believers, let's bring this forward into our experience. How does this relate to our mission of making disciples through evangelism and teaching the word? How does this relate to our, to our calling as believers empowered by the Spirit? It's the same work. You are revealing the Father to the lost and dying world that has rejected him. You're showcasing who God is through the Son. And that's why our fight song, Fanny Crosby, To God Be the Glory, Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he's done. It's the same mission. It's the same work. There are different specifics of the work. By the way, nobody here is going to die on the cross for anyone else's sins. We're not the same in every particular, but we're on the same mission. We have our specific cut. What's your cut of the mission? What's your piece? What is your calling? What is your specific individual thing? We know the universal generic responsibility is to make disciples. What's your specific piece of that enterprise? Ask yourself that question. Ask God that question. It has to do with your spiritual giftedness. It has to do with your willingness to abide in Christ by taking in his word and by living it, by keeping his commandments. It has to do with your prayer life. If you're consistent in your spiritual growth and your spiritual life, you won't struggle with what's my cut of the mission. You'll struggle with, Lord, how can I do all this unless you empower me? Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So right there, you have asking in the name of the Son. I don't believe we say, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for dying on the cross of my sin, for my sins in your name, amen. I don't think that's a good Christian prayer because I've got plenty of examples of Christian prayer in the New Testament. It's pretty consistent. You're in the throne room of heaven. Jesus Christ is the right hand of the Father. You're offering your prayers in the name of the Son to God the Father. You don't show up with the with the uh, associate partner in the room when you're talking to the CEO and the CEO is sitting there and you just start talking to the associate partner and say, could you tell him, could you tell him? Could you? He's talking to the CEO on your behalf, but you have been given an audience into the throne room of God the Father. And I think we need to be careful about this. I go to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And am I saying you can't pray to Jesus? I'm saying no. I'm saying that um, there seems to be a protocol. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Who does the executive work here? It's always Jesus. 
It's the Father seems to be, if you watch the, the scriptures in the New Testament, the Father seems to be the, the architect, planner, uh, Father. The Son seems to be the executor, the one who carries the plan out. And the Holy Spirit is always the wind bending the trees over. He's the empowerer. He's the empowerer. If you say Jesus in his earthly ministry cast out demons in the power of Satan, then that is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You are saying the works of the Spirit through Christ were really the works of Satan. Somehow the Holy Spirit in an invisible way is the empowerer the enabler, the one who makes you capable of doing what God has for you to do. And so, so here, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And then verse 15 is a stinger. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I believe I can summarize what Jesus says there by saying, uh, the way I show my love for the Lord Jesus Christ is not with a hug, though I'd like to. It's not with a reclining on his chest as John does in his close association with Jesus in the Last Supper, which John, the beloved disciple, did that. He reclined on the Lord Jesus in, in close communion and filial love for his best friend. And they had a special relationship that wasn't true of, of apparently Jesus and Peter. John calls himself the beloved disciple. But that's not how you show your love for Jesus. Now, how can I demonstrate my love for the Lord Jesus Christ? I can do what he said. I can love you. My spiritual life needs to be of such a character that it's about him. And then whatever he said, I take and I, and I go do. And that becomes about people. That's why Christianity is always God-focused and a ministry on behalf of people for God's sake. I will ask the Father, he says in verse 16, and he will give you another helper, a paraclete, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. The Spirit's always been working. He abides with you and he will be in you. I think that is a prophecy of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus teaches it first. He who has been with you will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the, my Father and you in me and I in you. See, we don't become of one essence with God. That's not an essence statement. It's a fellowship, participation, partaking together kind of statement. He's talking about spirituality. And here's the beautiful thing. In the Trinity, in the Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past, there has been a perfect communion of partaking of the things of God and righteousness and love and grace and joy in common together. There is the eternal bliss of God which is not contradicted by the cross, by sin, by the lake of fire, by anything. God has an eternal bliss and a joy. God has eternal peace. This enjoyment of the things of God that has always been going on in the eternal dance of Father, Son, and Spirit that does not require creation of us for God to have relationship. God has relationship with God. This eternal joy and rapport that the New Testament calls fellowship has been opened. The circle has been expanded and we have been brought in. What has always been true of the Father, Son, and Spirit in their rapport with one another is extended to us. This is what Jesus is offering when he says, in that day, you'll be in me. In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you in verse 20. 
And then we're very challenged. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. The fourth problem is what has changed. You said you're not going to, the Spirit can't go to the world. The Spirit only comes to us. You said you're not going to be manifest to the world. You're going to be manifest to us. You say that um, you're going to uh, disclose yourself only to those who love you. And then Judas, not Iscariot, it's a very common name, Judah is the name, one of the tribes of Israel. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? We're looking for the legitimate ex- uh, fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic kingdom. We're looking for the Lord Jesus to fulfill Psalm 91. We're looking for Psalm 2 with a king ruling on Zion over the nations. We're looking for Isaiah 2 with a transformation of nature and the, and the restoration from the curse. We're looking for Isaiah chapter 4 and the branch, the shoot from Jesse. We're looking for the, the rulership of Jesse's son, Jesus, David's greater son, over the nations. And they are. They have a legitimate expectation. And I hope you do too. I trust that you are expecting God to do what he said and not to join in bad theology that says what God said he didn't mean. The point is though, that's not what's happening now. He's not preparing them for the Davidic kingdom. He's preparing them for the age that we're in now where the Holy Spirit is in the individual believer to make you the temple of the Spirit of God and us together the temple of the Spirit of God. This is a specific and different thing. And so thus the, the misunderstanding, what, what's changed? Uh, what's happened that you're not going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Friends, I think that is Christian fellowship. The residence and rapport of the father and son and spirit in the believer I think when I say we're breaking fellowship with God through personal sin and we need to be cleansed and forgiven so we can have fellowship with God, that's what we're talking about. Look at it. He says, he says if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my father, as a consequence of keeping his word, my father will love him and we'll come to him and make our abode in him. This is spirituality don't wave your hand over this and say that's all believers that's just people that believe he didn't say those who believe in me he said those who keep my word what word is that well believing in jesus is to obey all his commands if that's true then there's not a believer in the room you don't obey all the commands of jesus not a one of you is a perfectly consistent obedient servant of jesus in other words, your love is not perfect. And husbands, your love is not perfect to your wives. And wives, your love is not perfect for your husbands. He's not talking about whether or not you have life. He's talking about whether you're living it. This is Christian fellowship. It is the abode of the Father, Son, and Spirit in you in this rapport partaking together since. And you break that when you won't obey his word. What is the problem of personal sin? It is disobedience of God. Christian spirituality is not about sin. Really, it's not about sin. It's about the abode of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the believer in a special sense as we are obedient to God. If you are resistant to this, if you're like, ah, it's not about obedience, it's about confession. If that's what you think, then you've misunderstood the Apostle John in 1 John. 
You've misunderstood the instruction of the Apostle Paul when he talks about walking by the Spirit or being filled by the Spirit or letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Christian spirituality begins with the Lord Jesus Christ in your new birth. And then living it is a matter of your dependence upon him, which results in your obedience of him. And that obedience, what do we call that when we love as we've been commanded? What do you call it when you love in the power of God the Holy Spirit because you're abiding in Christ? What do you call that? That is the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is Christian spirituality. This is, Christian, this is the special, enable, special enablement of God that comes when we abide in Christ from obeying his word. This is the, the, the fun study we've launched on for Christian spirituality. I hope that I trust that everyone here learned something in thinking about what it is truly to be spiritual, to truly abide in Jesus Christ, how that relates to our obedience. The weirdest thing in the world is somebody that'll separate John chapter 14 from John 15. Oh, I want to talk about abiding in Christ, but I don't want to talk about obeying him and keeping his word. That's just mysticism. Let's don't be mystical. And uh, let's don't be um, so book-minded, such bookworms that we can't see how this connects directly to our lives. Friends, this is your birthright. It's awesome. This spiritual life is awesome that you have in walking by the Spirit to empower you to obey the commands of Christ. You have the special presence of the Father and Son and Spirit. Let's transition over. I want to ask uh, whoever is designated to go pick up the children. We're going to transition over to our communion service. I want to get the kids back up here for the Lord's table. And uh, we've rearranged our order a little bit today. The Lord's table is a great illustration of what I've been talking about. It's by God's design an illustration. And what do we call it? What are the names? Real quick, what are the names for communion or the Lord's table? What are the names for it? What's that? Koinonia, okay. Koinonia is a Greek word for fellowship. Yeah, we call it communion. What does that mean? It just means bread and wine. Communion. What is, what is communion? Communion means fellowship or koinonia. It means having something together with someone. Having something in common. It's imagine a meal that you're eating together. What are other words? The Eucharist. Have you ever called it the Eucharist? That means, no, that's for a priest, you know, and, and they got to say the magic words and it changes. Eucharist doesn't mean that. It's a Greek word. It means thanksgiving. And it, it comes from the passages in the Bible when Jesus gave thanks and broke the bread. So it's the section in the scriptures where he, Eucharist, where he gave thanks. So that's where Eucharist comes from. What are other words for, for communion? The Lord's Supper. The Why would we call this communion if we're not engaging in fellowship with Christ, if we're not obeying his commands? Why do we say we're doing this in remembrance of him if we're not really fellowshipping with him? This is the point that's so helpful in this illustration. This bread and cup is saying, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on in, children. Come, come grab a seat. There's plenty of seats. There are plenty of seats.
Now, this is where it gets really uncomfortable. If you're up there, would you come down so we don't go up the stairs with the bread and cup, just, just for the Lord's table, just for this section. <clears throat> Who's in a church that uh, some of you are visiting? Does anybody do this every week, the weekly, Lord's table weekly? Okay. Just like the Bible says. <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, I, I don't believe, personally, I don't think it's, I don't want to get to a, d- d- a disagreement. I think it's great to do it weekly. I don't think the Bible says do it weekly. It, does, it doesn't say do it quarterly either, all the Baptists of the world, you know, or, or whatever. Um, but historically, this was the, the conclusion to an agape, to a, a, a sort of a recap of the Passover meal. Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples Hey, there are seats right over here, guys. I'm sorry, right, right over here. Teachers teach, ushers ush. I will ush while I teach. Thank you. Historically, this was a teaching illustration, and I, we bring the, the kids up here because I think it's very instructive using object lessons. This is, what is this? We're gonna get a piece of bread. It's physical, you can touch it. What people have done with the fact that this is a physical teaching illustration is very bizarre, I think, in church history, if you, if you think about what Jesus is doing with these elements from the Passover meal. But this has this historically been a, a climactic event in, um, in the way we've worshiped through church history. Now, here's the strange thing. If I'm the church, the clergy, go with me on this. If I'm the church, and you are coming to church. You understand, we just said the Dark Ages. That's what people thought church was through most of the medieval period. The clergy is the church, and you come to me because I'm going to do what? I'm going to give you your magic wafer. I'm going to give you your thing that, that, that saves you. If we do that, how much does it matter what you know? You just come to me, I know, and I give you the thing. I dispense the grace, and you just do the seven things that I require, the seven sacraments, especially this one, and then you're good. So what happens? Well, you don't need to learn anything. We don't need a book. We don't need to listen to anything. We just need to go be sure that the, that the, the church gives us our, our, our grace. And the, the Reformation undoes this and says, no, the priesthood is every believer. It's not me, the clergy. I'm a, I am, you can look it up in 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1, and, and there's a role here, but I'm not the church. You're the church. We are the church. So now you've got to know. So this is not a magic dispenser, dispensation of grace through physical means that if you eat it, you get the grace. Look here, young people. Look here, Samuel. This is a teaching, a concrete teaching illustration where you can touch it and feel it and taste it and make an association in your learning little mind. You can learn what happens by the grace of God when we trust in Christ. And what happens? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives you life. And the spiritual life is lived by faith in Christ. We continue to trust him. So one time we're baptized, we're dead in Christ, we're, uh, we're, we're dead for our sins and alive in Christ. We've died with him, we're resurrected with him positionally, that's the entrance into life. Little kids get that right away. Little kids in this church, you know that they beg to be baptized way before we're comfortable doing it? I know because most of them are mine. They see the other kids do it. They see all of you lined up on the shore. They see us go out in the water. They see us dunk them in and pull them out and everyone's crying and they're singing a song and they say, 
I want that to happen to me. Every time I do it, some little kid says, Pastor Dave, it's my turn. I'm like, you can't even swim and you can't, you don't even understand. What is baptism? I like to do what they did. And, um, and I, it's an illustration that gives some concrete understanding. We only got two Jesus gave us by his order. What a privilege it is to teach young people, to teach the young at heart through this observation of the body and blood of Christ that we believe in Jesus as our Savior and that we continue to trust in him. Now, the way we do this here, we focus on Christ. We don't play music. We're doing this truly in remembrance of him. We wait for everyone until the elements have been served. And there are a couple of ways you could do that. You can think about Jesus by prayer. You can spend time in prayer when you do this. But it is set up, I think, by Christ as a habitual test of our reflection, of our fellowship. I got it from Matthew 26, where he's supposed to, the disciples are supposed to be praying while Jesus is over praying by himself, and they're falling asleep. They can't hold it long enough to intercede for their Savior, for their, for their Master. Well, this is a test. I think when he says, do this in remembrance of me, we're going to concentrate on our Savior. To come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner means to be having fellowship with God and to be demonstrating it by these elements. So if I could ask the deacons forward to come help me bless and serve the Lord's table. I'm going to ask Alan Snow to give thanks for the bread. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom and opportunity we have to worship you. Uh, And we thank you for this time we have to remember the work of our Savior on the cross and participating in this ordinance of communion. As we prepare to take the bread, we remember the perfect sinless humanity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the perfect unblemished Lamb of God, and the love that you have for us to provide your son as the perfect sacrifice. We pray that uh, you would be glorified as we take the bread. We thank you and praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we said, we'll retain the bread until all have been served and eat together.
I always ask you, what's your cut in the mission? How do you get to have a voice? How do you get to say it? How are you participating in the work God has for you? Well, our, our mission is a message. Our mission is the word of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, when he teaches the Corinthians about this, this ritual, he says this is a proclamation. One way we have a cut is together we do this. We proclaim the Lord Jesus, and it doesn't say his resurrection. It says we proclaim his death, what Jesus suffered for us until he comes. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, take and eat. This is my body. Father, we're amazed at your scriptures that reveal you through your Son how we so easily miss it. The body being language used for various things through the scriptures. The church is often called the body. But here, we're talking about the fact that God took on flesh, your Son, from eternity past. Very God of very God became human so that he would be able to, to shoulder the load of all of our sins. It's a mystery to us, Father. The more we reflect on it, the more we come to the ends of ourselves and our ability to reason and understand. And yet we can understand that we needed the last Adam to undo the curse of the first. We thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his person. And most of all, Father, that we have him, that he has us. We're in an eternal relationship because of the body of Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen. I'm going to ask Joel Deverex if you'll give thanks for the cup. Father God, thank you for all the blessings you have given us. Thank you for our uniqueness, our individualism, and the different skills that we each have and that can bring to the table to, to glorify you. Uh, give us the strength and wisdom to be a witness to this, to, to um, uh, act this out in remembrance of you, that you have... Uh, your son has shed his blood to die for our sins, that only he could do it. We were not capable of, of covering our own sins. Uh, thank you for this, um, this the, the truth that you have given us, Lord. And uh, let us be good witnesses to you in this, this week. In the, Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's our custom will. Retain the cup till all have been served.
without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And this is what I think Paul's getting at when he says we proclaim his death. He, the bread, the cup, the death, until he comes. I take the cup to be the death of Christ where he would be crushed for our sins spiritually um, with a consequence physically, but spiritually by how Jesus talks about the cup in Matthew 26. I usually read from Matthew 26 on the Lord's table. But he asked that this cup could pass from him if it's God's will. The cup is the suffering he's going to have to endure for our sins. And this is what we're drinking to ourselves. The suffering of Christ is applied to me. But it's sweet. It's, it's, all, it's wonderful to us. It's not gall to us. It was horrific to him. And that's his joy, that he's our savior, that he got us for himself. And he wants us to enjoy the sweetness of life through him that required his crushing on our behalf. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, Jesus gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Father, for fellowship. That when we're obedient to you in dependence on your Son, your Spirit empowers us to bear fruit. And we have that special rapport, that special fellowship of abiding with you, your Son, with your Spirit. We praise you for this through your Son, the beginning of Christian spirituality and his death in our place. Father, give us opportunity to proclaim him, not just here and now, but in conversation in our actions, in our words and works. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
join or continue in worship through the ministry of giving. It's a decision we make, and if we make a decision to give, our attitude should be one of gratitude for the grace that God has shown us. In the words of Paul, not grudgingly nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We provide grace boxes for your use on the back wall. I want to ask uh, Jerry Bro to dismiss us in prayer this morning, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for the grace that you've bestowed upon us, for the teaching and the challenges that we heard. Father, uh, I pray that, that you go before us this week, uh, that you, whatever doors you may open to us, help us to walk through them and share your truth, and sh- share your word um, with a needy world, Father. Help us to be the lights that you desire us to be. It's your will that none perish. So, Father, give us the boldness and the strength and the willingness to speak your words, to do your will in all things this coming week and always. Let your light so shine through us to a a needy and lost world, Father. We thank you this day for all your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.